Welcome to Medication Talk, the official podcast of TRC Healthcare, Home of Pharmacist Letter, Prescriber's Letter, RX Advanced, and the most trusted clinical resources. On today's episode, we'll be listening in as our expert panel discusses how to tease out which serotonin syndrome interaction alerts are clinically significant. Our guest today is Dr. Douglas Powell from the University of Washington School of Medicine. You'll also hear practical advice from panelists on TRC's editorial advisory board. Dr. Reed Blackwelder from East Tennessee State University, Dr. Andrea Darby-Stewart from Honor Health, Dr. Anthony Donato from Reading Health System, Dr. Joseph Scherger from Primary Care 365 and Eisenhower Health, and Dr. Craig Williams from the Oregon Health and Science University. This podcast is an extract from TRC's Emerging Recommendations panel webinar. Each month, Experts and frontline providers discuss current medication therapy topics and practical recommendations to include in TRC's letter articles. The full webinar originally aired on August 18th, 2022. And now, the CE information. Pharmacist Letter offers CE credit for this podcast. Please log into your Pharmacist Letter account and look for the title of this podcast in the list of available CE courses. None of the speakers have anything to disclose. Now, let's join TRC editor, Dr. Lori Dickerson, and start our discussion. And this is coming up because you'll often need to tease out which serotonin syndrome interaction alerts are clinically significant. And so, Doug, to get us started, can you give us a a general definition of serotonin syndrome or serotonin toxicity? Yes, uh, they're really, the the terms are interchangeable. Different, different people will, will call serotonin syndrome. Other people think it's more clear to call it serotonin toxicity. And it's a rarely life-threatening condition associated with increased serotonergic activity in the CNS. And if you could talk a little bit about the spectrum of symptoms, Doug, and as you mentioned also, that sort of full-blown serotonin syndrome is a rare occurrence. Fortunately, it is, it is quite rare. Um, but The three areas that we kind of look at are mental status changes, uh, autonomic hyperactivity, and different neuromuscular abnormalities. And it can be very mild where you only really have one of those happening. And that's where I think sometimes we overlook serotonin, serotonin toxicity because we only see things like a person who's got a tremor or a little more anxious or maybe having a little bit of insomnia. uh, And we, we only think of this sometimes when they have all the physical findings, all the hyper, the autonomic uh, hyperactivity or the muscle issues, but it can certainly happen with just a few of those. And I think that's not an uncommon thing for us to see in primary care, people with tremor, people with nervousness, people with insomnia. So it's on our differential for those things. Mm-hmm. You know, I appreciate the description that you've just given to us here, um, Doug, and I wanted also to call on Craig because we had some discussion on some the description of the type of symptoms that you see in practice, and you've had some recent experience with a patient uh, that you could share with us. I'll just say a couple, and it's, I mean, um, Doug's points are well appreciated, and it Fortunately, you know, the severe syndrome that we'd all kind of recognize as serotonin toxicity, that is very rare. But I, I think there's a bit more debate now and how often the mild syndrome occurs and, you know, whether it's all just the disruption we've all had the last couple of years in COVID. And, but, you know, as we've discussed uh, stress and anxiety, it seems to be more common among patients and we're just seeing more polypharmacy combinations, things that may be putting some folks at risk. And, but yeah, our last couple of cases have been 
you know, and you know, those who work on the inpatient side can appreciate that altered mental status is such a common diagnosis in people in the ED. And when you start going down meds and see things recently started, uh, our most recent case was uh, SSRI and SNRI and then a newer atypical antipsychotic, um, none of which were brand new in the last two weeks, but two of which were newish in the last 60 days. And often we hold a lot of medicines and they get better over a couple of days. And it's we don't have a firm diagnosed at the end, but this has come up more in our differential diagnosis for patients who come in on at least two or more medicines that affect their serotonin pathway, who just often have mild altered mental status, the point where someone brought them in the ED and said, you know, something's mm -hmm. wrong with this patient. You know, Craig, you specifically asked us about the word agitation that we have in this phrase yeah. in the article. Most patients have more subtle symptoms of serotonin excess that can be easy to miss. And, and you were suggesting that maybe we kind of tone down that term agitation to denote more mental status changes, which is what I just heard, you know, Doug mentioned too. What, would you use a different descriptor there? No, I mean, delirium is great. I think in the third or second line here, we have the word delirium, delirium. which I think mm -hmm. is good. Uh, yeah, because again, they may not be real. I mean, it, Many of our patients with mild delirium of all kinds of causes can be mildly agitated, but many yep. times they're not. They're just a slight delirium and not agitated, and uh, we're not having to sedate them chemically, but they're clearly just, they're not passing all of our tests mm -hmm. of are you thinking clearly or not. So, But I think delirium is, is honestly a good word where we have it. So um, I would in the language in that first, where we say it's extremely rare to have fatal cases, that yeah, that's like extremely, extremely. I would almost suppose saying extremely rare to have the severe cases that Doug mm -hmm. and I are talking about and maybe move fatal towards the end. It's I think without MAOI on board, it, it's not unheard of to have fatal cases, but it's almost unheard of since we're not using MAOI as much anymore. So Okay, that's a great point too. And we have been uh, you know, discussing that. So I appreciate you bringing that up. And actually, I wanted to go back to you, Reed and Andrea and Joe. And I'm curious, in your primary care practice, do you frequently see these alerts pop up in your electronic health record for concerns about serotonin syndrome with your patients? Uh, yes, Lori, I do. I mean, our, our new EPIC record is very good at, at warning us about it and, uh, and you know, causes me to pause and try to avoid combining medications that would uh, trigger it. So okay. you know, I think it's where the record is very helpful. So relevance is, is the case for you. And Reed, what about you? Yeah, I would say the that's one thing the electronic record does, and I think I've said this before, I, I tend not to call it an electronic health record because it's not about health, it's all about billing. Um, mm -hmm. And the thing with it, though, is that with patients, especially during COVID, getting medications and care in so many different places, um, sometimes those interactions are, are very uh, risky and, and aren't identified at the point of care. So mm -hmm. I really patients come and giving us a chance to kind of run through that list and this is where the electronic record does make a difference and andrea how about in your practice and your teaching about this um yeah we actually uh, we use epic as well so i do get um alerts um my preference would be when i get those alerts that it gives me a level of risk and if i'm remembering correctly the last time i saw that there was not a level of risk it was mm -hmm. just alert there is a possibility for interaction so i think um you know, as we start talking about this a little bit more um, with the medications to truly avoid versus those that we don't need right. to be worried about, I would love to see uh, some differentiation there in my okay. electronic medical record. Very good, very good. And we're going to talk about how you do that. It is, 
it is difficult to sort of bucket these drugs into levels of risk, but we've tried to do that. And, you know, Craig, you mentioned a few of the risk factors or scenarios where serotonin syndrome can show up. And so I just wanted to check back on our wording here. We say, you know, adding new serotonergic meds, increasing doses or interactions may tip the balance. And are these sort of the primary things that you are thinking about when you're considering uh, perhaps a risk of serotonin syndrome? Yeah, no, I think those are spot on. So, I mean, this does not happen in the absence of pharmacotherapy that affects these pathways. So, and it's, you know, pretty well delineated from the cases that it doesn't get better if you don't withdraw those things. So, mm-hmm. you know, occasionally someone asked that they thought a patient had a mild case, but they continued therapy and they got better. That wasn't serotonin toxicity. So it, it famously mm-hmm. does not get better if you don't find the offending agent. But yeah, the offending agent could be something that inhibits particularly 2D6 or 3A4 right. and raises level of things that have already been on board. And, and fortunately, you know, potent inhibitors are relatively uncommon or EMRs are pretty good at picking those out. But uh, but yeah, it could be a drug interaction and not a new serotonergic agent per se. So we'll talk about some of these specific scenarios, but let's sort of talk about our approach and how we're trying to help clinicians consider different groups of meds and the risk of serotonin syndrome. And so, Doug, we tried the traffic light approach uh, as you're evaluating each situation and what are the stops and the caution and the goes. And I'm curious about when you're teaching about this in your residency practice, how do you approach sort of the teaching of this? Yeah, I like that approach. I mean, I think they're the the ones that you're really going to absolutely avoid. And that really is, I think, was was mentioned earlier, MAO inhibitors, um, mm-hmm. really problematic. And just a quick history lesson, probably the most famous uh, and not not really emphasized uh, MAO serotonergic interaction that has ever happened was the Libby Zion case. As many of you remember that for people that are younger that are listening, that kind of led to medical reform because the concern was that unsupervised house staff didn't needed more supervision. But the reality was in in those days, nobody really knew much about serotonin syndrome. And this young woman got phenylzine. She was given chlorpheniramine at home, came in with mild to moderate symptoms of a, of a serotonergic reaction, and then was given Demerol, which is on this list here, mm-hmm. meparidine, yes. and then just had the worst uh, horrible uh, uh, serotonin syndrome and died from it. So, you know, I think the MAO inhibitors are ones that we really don't want to touch, uh, if at all, putting things in. And and the one medicine that I wanted to kind of emphasize that that has MAO-like effects is linazolid, as something mm-hmm. that we can sometimes give a sick person in the hospital and they're on a high dose of an SSRI, um, and then we start them on linazolid. You know, that's one where I think we should we should really have some real caution and think through that one. I definitely want to spend some time talking about linazolid. And first of all, thank you for that history lesson. I actually did not know that. uh, And I bet a lot of folks on this call did not know about the history of serotonin syndrome and the combination with phenylzine. We also have noted to steer clear of serotonergic meds combos with other meds that have MAOI-like effects like isoniazid and metaxalone and linazolid. And so I do want to come back to linazolid. And uh, because we are getting some questions also about this one, Doug, it's, you know, generally it's a short course of therapy. Uh, so folks are wondering if, if they're on an SSRI or they're on an SNRI, 
uh, and you want to use linazolidge, should you really find an alternative antibiotic or should you hold the SSRI and SNRI? And so I'm curious about what your thoughts are with that question about linazolidge specifically, Doug. Yeah, I mean, the problem is that, that serotonin syndrome can come on suddenly. It, it actually has an onset 24 hours compared to other other things that look like it. And neuroleptic malignant syndrome is the main thing in the differential that we think about, and that has a gradual onset. So the potential of getting into trouble in, in 24 to 48 hours of just adding uh, linazolid on is very real. And I, you know, I think certainly if there's an alternative antibiotic, that's wonderful. If there isn't, then I think holding the SSRI for a day or two, we always worry about withdrawal syndromes, but for most SSRIs, a day or two of missing it is not going to cause a problem. So you get the linazolid in there. Hopefully within a few days, they aren't going to need to stay on linazolid mm -hmm. and something else. Good, great explanation, Craig. I'm curious about how you're handling that in your health system. Yeah, I mean, linazolid already, if we're reaching for it, usually we've kind of gone through or thought about other options. So I mean, it's, we rarely use it, as I'm sure Doug probably pretty uncommon in his practice. And, you know, often, again, we've, we've thought through alternatives. So the idea of, you know, can you hold one or especially if there's more than one, honestly, if it's just an SSRI or just an SNRI, we've certainly used linazolid in that setting more than a handful of times and maybe been fortunate not getting into trouble with it. Um, but again, often there's not an easy alternative or we wouldn't be reaching for the right. But yeah, I would endorse it. Is there, if your EMR is alerting you, what's the other agent? And it's almost never an MAOI. So it's something that's, you know, of moderate risk. And can that be held for a few days on ASA? That'd be a very reasonable approach on an mm -hmm. individual patient basis. So I guess we sort of walk the line here in our recommendation to monitor closely if the benefit of one of these combos clearly outweighs risk, such as a patient on an SSRI or SNRI for severe mood disorder who has an infection requiring linazolid. So I think those are sort of the, the far ends of the bell curve there where we're saying both are necessary and monitor, but try not to do that and hold it for a couple of days, as Doug has mentioned. So I think that answers that question. I think in the setting of, you know, most of the cases are giving IV linazolid in the hospital and you can monitor it. You have them right, right. there and uh, right. you can adjust and if you have to treat, you can treat. So I, I, I think that's a, that can be a very safe setting. Mm -hmm. It's true when we start. It's sometimes our go-to take-home oral med for some folks, but that is a good point. The only thing I was going to add is some, if the other offending, if there's a, you know, Pirin, Zofran, on board, or they've got a triptan for headache at home. Right. Some, maybe something else besides the chronic mood med that you can address with them to minimize. Mm -hmm. That's a good point too. And we're going to talk. We're actually getting a lot of questions coming in about tramadol and trazodone and triptan. Yeah. So we're going to come to those. And uh, I wondered if maybe uh, we would want to make the point in this paragraph that these would be ideally people who are hospitalized getting linazolid, maybe versus outpatients being sent home with with oral and uh, you know getting an SSRI at home. So we'll work on that. Work and also say more of that on our uh, hospital prescriber's letter, hospital pharmacist letter. So I want to move on to the caution section uh, of our traffic light here and focus on interaction alerts that uh, are not stops like MAOIs, uh, but require you to think twice, proceed with caution. And the first stop is tramadol. And so, Andrea, I'm curious in your practice, how do you approach using tramadol if you needed to in a patient who is on an SSRI or SNRI? Um, well, you know, typically it's not a go-to medication for me, certainly mm -hmm. like most clinicians, I think that we uh, are trying to use NSAIDs and acetaminophen mm -hmm. instead of medications like tramadol or other opioids. Um, but if I do 
need to prescribe it or I have a patient who's come to me with a new um, SSRI or SNRI prescription and they have been taking tramadol, um, we talk about um, what the potential interaction would be and I give them monitoring parameters um, and have them contact me if they develop them or we try and uh, change either the tramadol or the SNRI or SSRI that they're on. And Doug, what are your thoughts about this interaction? And we do make the point that, you know, it's, it's especially risky or let me rephrase that. It's it's riskier with paroxetine or fluoxetine versus, say, sertraline, for example. Yeah. Um, so curious about your thoughts here in this paragraph. Yeah, I agree with Andrea. I, you know, I think we, we try to do the end run around tramadol as much as we can, uh, both in this situation, I think in general. Um, and I agree with uh, the paroxetine and uh, fluoxetine. I probably also add duloxetine to that list as mm -hmm. well, which I think can have the same effect. And again, it's the stacking of these things that get into trouble. It's also the escalating of dose that gets into trouble. And I, I've seen a couple of cases where people were on tramadol and and they were on, say, 50 of sertraline, and then their sertraline dose got increased or their tramadol dose got increased, and they were okay with the interaction. And then when the doses were escalated, the problem became bigger. So I think maybe putting a, you know, a, a thing about, about really paying close attention to the dosing of these medicines if you are going to head into this drug interaction. Mm -hmm. You know, Craig, we, of course, have a lot of pharmacists on the call who see patients and getting prescriptions for these meds, maybe from different prescribers, and they're asking questions about, do you think it's okay to fill these, say it's mm -hmm. a fluoxetine and a tramadol, uh, without making a call to one or the other, and I'm just curious about how you handle that in your in your teaching practice. Yeah, I mean, ideally not, I mean, but uh, the ideal world is, is difficult sometimes, but uh, yeah, you know, we talked about doing medication reconciliation and getting a printout from your pharmacist. These days, sometimes it's a printout from your two or three different pharmacists um, mm -hmm. because people are using multiple pharmacies to get uh, medicines filled. So yeah, I think ideally, if the EMR is prompting, if a pharmacist knows there's a, a second or third of any agent from a different pharmacy, different prescriber, that's worth alerting prescriber number one. Uh, I mean, prescribers that know what's being used, they, mm -hmm. they can't obviously take the precaution. So it's a great place for pharmacy to try to be involved, but I realize how hard that is to do often. Right. Fluoxine has, a, I know, a long half-life. Why, as far as Paxil and Fluoxine being worse, is that truly, I just don't want people to think that others are like safer if there's not data for that, but are these really worse offending SSRIs? Um, I think it's due to some of the interactions that they're longer acting, but Doug, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, I, I think that it has to do with how tramadol is, is metabolized. It's mm -hmm. it's through, uh, I think, CYP2D6. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so the ones that have a greater activity there, it's a bigger problem. Okay, so this is a tramadol specific recommendation yeah. here, or is that the intent? Yeah, okay. tramadol specific. Yeah. Tramadol okay. specific, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's actually talk about opioids too. This seems a little bit straighter forward to me, you know, in that we talk about leaning away from combining an opioid with serotonergic effects like fentanyl, methadone, and riperidine, as you had mentioned in, in, the, in our history lesson, Doug, with other serotonergic meds. And so I guess, Doug, just to comment on this list, would you agree with these as uh, being agents to be concerned with? And of course, would you, assuming these patients would need an opioid, we would just switch to a an agent without serotonergic effects. Is that how you yeah. would handle that? Yeah, I think like, you know, the morphine does not seem to have as much of a problem with it. Uh, the the fentanyl, fentanyl by itself 
isn't too bad. I mean, it's a single single interaction. It's it's got more of a direct effect on the 5-HT receptor. I haven't worried too much. I think a lot of it is that in the hospital setting where we're going to be giving big doses of all these drugs and keeping these things in the background, just always keeping this on the differential diagnosis when your patient starts to do poorly. And I think, Craig, we have a question, uh, again, from a retail pharmacist asking, would it be safer to tell a patient to take their tramadol just at bedtime or once a day and not at the same time day that they take their SSRI or SNRI? And so, um, Doug and, and Craig, I'm wondering if you can comment on that scenario. Yeah, happy to hear Doug's thoughts, but no, I mean, these intera- if it, these kinetic interactions through right. cytochromes, the uh, timing is not, like, yeah. Uh, basically, no would be the short answer. So the, the effect so too. is too too long lasting. So yeah. that's what I would think too. I so agree. I just wanted to yeah reiterate that to the group. So limiting talk, use, limit, limiting yep. use. Good question. Yep. All right. So uh, I think we've covered uh, the cautionary alerts, and we've made the points to, if practical, switch to to one of the meds that does not interact um, and otherwise use the lowest effective doses and advise patients to monitor and report symptoms promptly. So I think we've covered that. Uh, But I do want to spend a little time on the go section, uh, which interactional alerts um, are the ones that, Andrea, you would hope that you wouldn't actually have to see on your electronic health record where we don't need to be overly concerned. And so we're talking here about tryptans, trazodone, mirtazapine, we highlight metoclopramide and uh, ondansetron, the 5-HT3 antiemetics. And so, Doug, would you agree that these are uh, ages that you do not need to be overly concerned about causing serotonin syndrome, with the exception, of course, the situations where many drugs are being kind of piled on, as you mentioned before? Yeah, the, the pop-ups come up when you try to prescribe a triptan and somebody who's on an SSRI, and that has been pretty much debunked a bit. Uh, right. The likelihood is so low, and the reason that this became so publicized was in 2006, the FDA sent out a a Dear Doctor warning letter to everybody um, based on 29 cases, and then when that was re-looked at, none of those really met stringent criteria for for serotonin syndrome, and then now that we have a lot of data on on what's happened in these pharmacodatabases, have people who've gotten the combination gotten serotonin syndrome? The answer is no. So the Triptan SSRI, I think we can all be comfortable prescribing, and it's it's that adding the second or third or fourth drug where just a little bit of effect you may get with the triptan could push, you know, could be an issue, but but not by itself. And same thing with undansetron, the other medications you mentioned. Everything said is is right on, uh, but I think just the uh, the big things for me, it's hard to have uh, the ability to go through these med lists, especially as busy as they've gotten, and it it's almost a somebody else's problem thing mm-hmm. where you have two or three other specialists that are managing things, but it still has to be one person's problem. And I, I love involving the pharmacists in this, but I, I bring back my psychiatrist are using two or three different medicines at once, all with some serotonergic effects. And for me, Ultram Tramadol is, is the biggest dog. No one takes extra antipsychotics. No one takes extra antidepressants, but they all, if Tramadol, one Tramadol works, they'll take six. And that's mm-hmm. where I see them get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Careful looking at the lists, even if it's not your drug and being familiar with these enough and knowing that things that are PRN may get abused. Mm-hmm. And you know, Andy, uh, to add to that, uh, questions are coming in. And we do cover this in the article about OTCs, patients picking up serotonergic 
OTCs such as dextromethorphan or St. John's wort. And so, Doug, can you just comment on the risk of those and where they sort of fit into the equation? Yeah, well, I think St. John's wort shouldn't be taken by anybody because uh, mm -hmm. when it has it has an issue here, but it, it certainly has bigger issues in in drug interactions and hypermetabolism for other things. The dextromethorphan one's interesting because in small doses, it's probably not a big deal, but but now it's become a drug of abuse and people take large doses of dextromethorphan. And we had a, we had a case uh, a few months ago here that got admitted, which was with somebody combining ecstasy with large doses of dextromethorphan and they were on an SSRI. And that combination really led to the need to be hospitalized with a serotonin syndrome. So I just throw out the drugs of abuse too, uh, that, that you know MDMA and then big doses of dextromethorphan can be really problematic. We hope you enjoyed and gained practical insights from listening into this discussion. Now that you've listened, you can receive CE credit from Pharmacist Letter. Just log into your Pharmacist Letter account and look for the title of this podcast in the list of available CE courses. If you're not yet a Pharmacist Letter subscriber, find out more about our product offerings at trchealthcare.com. Be sure to follow or subscribe, rate, and review this show in your favorite podcast app. It helps spread the word about our show and is a great way for you to let us know how we're doing. You can also reach out to provide feedback or make suggestions by emailing us at contactus at trchealthcare.com. Thanks for listening to Medication Talk.